These days, it's not hard to figure out what people are against. Loud opinions on social media, tense conversations with friends or family, lines drawn in the sand. Maybe we need to redefine what we're against. Well, we just kind of hit you with that one, didn't we? Uh, threw you into where's the love. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I'll give my age away a little bit here. I vividly remember being an eighth grader, sitting in front of a very large computer on YouTube, which had very few options, and watching where's the love and being like, wow, this is profound. So <laughs> I hope it was a, a wonderful moment for you. And uh, honestly, Ryan, our uh, lead worship pastor here, has insane talent that he's a jazz, blues pianist who just pulled off Will I Am impersonations, so <laughs> very impressive. Um, we've got this new series, What We're Actually Against, and uh, this one, I'm just going to warn you up front, we're going to dive into the deep end here. Uh, this first Sunday, we wanted to talk about divisiveness, divisiveness as something that we are actually against, but as I was wrestling with divisiveness, um, like I said, we're, we're diving into the deep end here. I was reflecting on a New York Times opinion article that highlighted a study, if you can track with all of this, by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And the article was called, What Happens When Democracies Become Perniciously Polarized? Perniciously Polarized. So the study looks at 52 countries over the last 50 years. It has all this tracking data sociologically that it's sort of uh, analyzing in political discourse. It's looking at uh, speech by politicians, how rival parties talk about each other. It looks at behaviors. It looks at violence related to political ideologies and beliefs. And as this study looks, not just at the United States, but every democracy that's ever existed, they have two very startling conclusions that this study came to, and this article came out just this past January. Uh, the first conclusion was that most democracies that become perniciously polarized inevitably collapse as democracies. In essence, democracies, when society becomes so toxic, so divisive, they hit this point where just politically, historically, sociologically, they can no longer function and democracy collapse into some other form of government. Uh, the second, even more disturbing insight that's related to us here in the city of Chicago is that according to their research, the United States in the last 10 years has entered their highest level, level four, which they categorize as perniciously polarized uh, in our political discourse, in our political behaviors, in our political actions, in violence associated with politics. And as they have been surveying history over the last 50 years, uh, their disturbing but warning cry was that no country has ever been this polarized for this long, and their warning was, if the United States cannot de-escalate our divisiveness, then we eventually will face the same collapse that many democracies have discovered. Now, that's a heavy word to start off a sermon, but I think it's because here, in an honest conversation around divisiveness, if you've been listening to the news, if you've been watching cultural commentators, if you read any of the studies, uh, there's a very serious, active conversation happening right now in the United States about the dangerous signs that our society is, in fact, more divided than ever, 
more politically divided, more religiously, ethnically, sociologically divided. And there is concern, very active concern, that I just want to be honest and upfront about, that we are facing a crisis moment culturally uh, in a democracy here in the United States. Now, I think it's helpful if I'm going to sort of start with such a heavy pronouncement to talk a little bit about how we got here. Why is it uh, that these sociologists think we currently are at this level four toxicity around our divisiveness. Um, there's a couple great resources. One is a guy named Ezra Klein, who just recently wrote a book called Why We're So Polarized. Another is a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And what they both look at in the United States specifically, this should hopefully hit home a little bit, is that we, as the United States, distinctly have a political system that is two parties, right? We have, from the beginning, for a lot of different reasons, been binary as a country. And so when you think about it, just naturally, even the United States is a democracy as opposed to other democracies, we find ourselves often split on issues, left or right. Now, uh, I'm not here to tell you which way you should lean. Uh, I'm not here to judge which way you lean. Instead, I think it's just a helpful reality to name that in our current climate, it's hard to be somewhere in the middle, isn't it? It's kind of hard in a divisive society like ours to not, when some new issue pops up, to not find ourselves immediately going one way or the other. The second point that most of these sociologists like to point to is that in the last 20 years especially, we have found this new factor lobbed into our political climate that is called social media. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, if you had a chance to watch the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma, they envision social media as a kind of stringed puppeteer playing with us through their algorithms, if you ever had a chance to see it. But you've probably heard something about this, right? That it, the social media factor right now in our society means that you're not just listening to a neutral palette of values and visions and belief. Instead, there are these algorithms that like to pull one string in specific, and that string is outrage. <laughs> so when you go to your newsfeed, it doesn't matter which one you're on, Twitter, Instagram, something else that the kids are doing these days, uh, whatever it is, whatever social media you find yourself on, you're going to find that as you're going through your newsfeed, the information that you gravitate towards the information that gets you most activated is information of some sort that either makes you angry, that makes you sad, that makes you disgusted or outraged. Uh, I was amazed just the other day I was on Facebook and I was going through a news feed and all of a sudden a person from my past who I haven't seen in 10 years, haven't thought about in 10 years, haven't reached out to, I mean I would have no connection to, had a tragedy strike in their life and they'd posted about it and there it was seven or eight down, this tragedy sitting there on my newsfeed, and immediately I, I was grateful. So I went, oh, this person, I can't believe, you know, I comment, I send a little love, I, I'm so glad I could be connected to it, and yet as I was pondering this just sort of innocent, oh, of course they popped back up in my life. I couldn't help but wonder how much other information is coming to me through my newsfeeds that I wouldn't otherwise have sought out, I wouldn't otherwise have been connected to, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, when I'm on Twitter, I find myself more angry than I was before Twitter. Why do I keep coming back to this source that just makes me angry? Uh, sometimes when I'm on Instagram, I find myself more jealous than before I got onto Instagram. Why? Why did I do that to myself? 
but this isn't just happening in our personal lives. This is happening on our values as our society is being pulled further and further apart. Finally, uh, and perhaps the most significant point that hit closest to home, that might hit closest to home for you, uh, in this study by the Carnegie Endowment, they note that the United States specifically has had more demographic shifts in power, more different parties, uh, different ethnic groups, different genders, different sexual orientations, pulling in different directions than almost any other democracy that they could chronicle from a demographic standpoint. And their concern was that what's happened is that this shifting has happened so fast in the United States with many positive results, uh, but it's left us so unstable that everyone feels vulnerable and like their identity is being attacked. And, and if you're tracking with me, it doesn't matter what your identity is, right? You could be white or you could be Latino. You could be male or you could be not male, you could be straight, you could be gay, you could be Republican, you could be a Democrat, whoever you are, the problem is that you feel vulnerable. You feel vulnerable because so much is shifting around us. And because you feel vulnerable, everything feels personal, everything feels like a threat. And so none of us set out to become divisive people, right? None of us wake up and are like, you know, I think I'm actually like pretty divisive, if I'm being honest. But instead, as we are living our lives, as our identity is feeling this pressure from all of these shifting tides around us, every time a new policy pops up, every time a new Supreme Court ruling is enacted, every time a new presidential or political election comes through our society, everybody feels like they're being threatened and attacked. And I think if we could even be honest here, just in the church, in community Lincoln Park, I think as a Christian in the city, I, I think if we're being honest, it often is the case that if you just live your life here in the city as a Christian, you kind of feel this, okay, okay, am I okay? Is someone angry at me? Am I doing something wrong? Am I going to be attacked? Is this going to be problematic? Is, am I gonna need to fight for something? And so it doesn't matter what your identity is, we're all feeling this pressure and so because we're all feeling this pressure, all of us are far more defensive, far more activated, far more vulnerable than we've ever been before. So with all of that heaviness, we're, we're a good way into a heavy conversation, but here's where I want to offer you the turn. What difference does God or the church make to this moment of polarity? What difference does God or the church make to a culture that is divided? Here's the good news I want to offer you this morning. God changes everything. The good news of Jesus Christ offers us an entirely different paradigm as Christians that we could walk through this moment. But I want to stay in the realness with you for just one more second here before we start moving through this message. I think coming in, this is uh, only my sixth week, seventh week here at Community Lincoln Park, I think in finding myself sort of stepping into this sermon, I think this issue, this issue of divisiveness is going to be one of the make or break issues for Christians in this moment if we are going to remain together as a church, if we're going to get anywhere near flourishing where we're reaching back out to the city. I think if we cannot survive the onslaught of divisiveness, the church here in the city at least is just going to fold under all that pressure. But if Community Lincoln Park 
we can become a church that resists divisiveness, if we can actually find our center together, I think there is a real chance that we will have something distinct that all of our neighbors are going to be looking for. We're actually gonna have a unity, a deeper unity and purpose than is available or possible outside of the church. So, with that said, let's turn to the scriptures and let's ask this question, what does it mean to be a church that is unified in a culture of divisiveness. So I want to take you first to this passage in Romans. And here's the encouraging news. Though there are unique pressures on us in the United States today, the good news is we are not alone in facing divisiveness both outside and within the church. Isn't that a slightly encouraging thought? Uh, This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Rome, so just picture with me for a second. This is the central hub of politics. This is the central hub of power in Paul's day. And there's this tiny community, tiny community that's gathering together and that's committing themselves to the way of Jesus, that's following him in the city. And yet still, Paul has to give this very clear instruction. He says in Romans 16, 17 to 18, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Man, that is a passage just worth ruminating on this week, isn't it? It's one even I would encourage you to return to. Here's the truth, the reality. It's easy to get distracted by divisions, isn't it? It's easy to find ourselves sort of drawn in to these pressure points, even this binary system where we're asked, what are we for Where do you stand? What do you believe about this? And yet Paul is telling us, resist the obstacles to the faith. Resist the distractions that pull you apart from the center that we were meant to find ourselves in. What is that center? We'll go to our next passage here. We're doing a sort of broad sweep of the New Testament. As it talks about divisions, there is this powerful prayer offered by Jesus, and this actually is in the Gospel of John. This happens right before Jesus is going to the cross, and many scholars call it the high priestly prayer because Jesus, representing the church, is going to look out not just to his disciples who he will pray for, not just those who are following him in the moment, but he's going to pray all the way into the future for you and I, and this This is what Jesus sees and knows that we will need prayer for. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I mean, if you linger with that for just a second, isn't it profound? Jesus says the world will be able to tell of the oneness of God, the oneness that God the Father and Jesus his Son shares, if And in some ways, only if the church, the church is able to be one. He's going to say that they may be one as we 
are one. And if you're tracking with me, this is his prayer, not just for them or for others or for his followers, but this is his prayer for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus has a vision for the church that the church would be united. In fact, if we really wrestle with that vision, I think each of us would come away with some convictions about the contributions we ourselves have played to pulling the church apart. However, at this point, you may be getting just a little bit nervous. It's a lot of oneness talk, a lot of unity, a lot of love, good feelings, good vibes. Is what I'm getting at that we're just somehow magically all going to like lock arms and sing songs together forever. Uh, There's actually a beautiful ad that I'm going to show you if you haven't seen it. Uh, It's it's some ads really do pack a punch and convey more in their one minute than I could taking another five here to explain it. So let's go ahead and watch this and I'll follow up. good, right? It makes you want to buy an Android, to be totally honest. <laughs> um, but if you can track with that, that picture for just a second, isn't it beautiful? Unity is not uniformity. We are not called to play the same note, but our distinct note, and yet to play that note in harmony with each other. It kind of begs the question, and this is a big question that I'm not going to be able to fully land this morning, but the big question is this, If we are seeking unity, not uniformity, where is it that we as a church are going to center ourselves? What is going to be the anchor, the orbit through which gravity pulls us all together? And then where is there going to be space for each of us to distinctly and with graciousness play the notes that God has placed before us? I think if I could just gesture with you, acknowledging that these are loaded conversations that are going to require lots of follow-up and exploration, I think the clearest center that we have is on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That if we can center on Jesus, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in just a second, if we can center ourselves on Jesus, then I think we as a community can find ourselves diverging on certain beliefs but returning again and again and again to the same Lord, to the same one who is guiding our steps. Now, if that's true, the the follow-up question for me is, well, what does it look like to center our lives on Jesus, right? That's the real question. That's a question worth spending lots of time together working this out. And again, it's a bigger question than I can land this morning. But I just want to be clear with you, as I've 
been doing this survey, as we've been gathering lots of voices, as I've been hearing lots of experiences, I think there actually is this heartbeat here at Community Lincoln Park that is shared, of course, by community churches all across Chicagoland. And that's, I hear all of us wanting to follow Jesus and to find Jesus through the scriptures, this word that Jesus has offered us. So I think if we could become a church here in the city, a church that is unified around Jesus, that is centered on Jesus, and commits ourselves to the scriptures to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus in all of the complexity, all of the challenges, all of the big questions that all of us are asking. If we relentlessly return to that, we could actually begin to navigate some of these divisive issues by being committed to each other. Yet if we're going to do that, here's another passage in Paul. Again, it's almost like Paul was dealing with this all the time in the early church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 2 to 6. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I love that. There is one God. There is one faith. There is one center. And yet, notice what Paul coaches us in. If we're going to do this, we've got to stay humble. We've got to stay gentle. We have to be patient with each other. Okay, just to try to land the plane, I, I think uh, this series is going to hopefully allow us to keep opening up some big questions, and I just want to acknowledge again, I think this is one of the biggest questions, not just facing us as a community, but facing culture more broadly. Uh, so in saying that, I realize there's far more to discuss here, but if I were to try to direct us towards uh, worship together, call us together to give us some practical steps of where we're going to go, what are three ways three steps that we as a community could begin walking this out. How could we pursue unity without uniformity? First, as I've kind of already surfaced, I think this is the biggest. The invitation is to become Jesus-centric with your life, with your values, and with your vision. Now, here's why it is so hard to be Jesus-centric with our vision, our culture and our society is offering a lot of different personalities and platforms that are all speaking to us and that are all directing us where we should go. And I don't want to pick on these two. I, I pick them because these are two that I personally have listened to. I, I want to call this the Ben Shapiro and the Joe Rogan problem, right? The problem is not that Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro are not very interesting, informed, inquisitive conversationalists who have a lot of thoughts to contribute. The problem is that for some of us, and I, again, I'm picking on me here first and foremost, for some of us, we can hear more from Joe Rogan, we can hear more from Ben Shapiro, or maybe for you, it's, it's that late night talk show host, or it's that news platform, or it's that go-to podcast, we begin hearing more from personalities and platforms than we do from Jesus. And so the really simple but 
profound challenge, if you actually wanted to take seriously the call to step away from divisiveness, is that again, I'm not, I am not encouraging any of you to change where you are coming from when it comes to your political beliefs, values, or ideologies. What I am encouraging you to do is re-up what it looks like to center Jesus in your life. And what I think that could mean is taking a fast from some voice or platform that is probably influencing you more than you realized, and instead spend time receiving from the scriptures that voice of Jesus that wants to offer you clarity and direction. There's this study that was recently done where uh, CNN paid Fox News viewers up to seven hours a week for a month to not watch Fox News and instead to watch CNN. And what's interesting is, first and foremost, none of the viewers stepped away from conservative political values, right? None, none of them flipped political ideologies, but noticeably, the survey that was done at the end of the month, of course, was that after shutting down one news platform and listening to another, the, val the actual vision and values of those viewers shifted slightly. They specifically noted that uh, perceptions of Joe Biden shifted significantly, that uh, values around gun violence began to shift, and also the perception of the war in Ukraine was different at the end of the month than it had been at the start. Now here's the irony to that study. If Fox News did the same and paid CNN viewers to watch more Fox News, the exact inverse would happen. Do you want to know why? Because we are formed and shaped by the voices that are coming into our lives. And so my point is not to shame anyone for any voice that you're listening to. My point is to invite you. What would it look like to make Jesus the center? Is it possible you need to stop listening to some voices so that you can hear Jesus more clearly? Let's keep moving. I've got two more. Second, if Jesus-centric is our unity, then the second step we can take is to stop judging. So Jesus is going to say this in Matthew 7, 1 to 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I've got three judgments I tend to make. One is my social media judgment, where I scroll and go, oh, they believe that. Uh, the second one is my city-suburb judgment, where <laughs> I meet someone from the suburbs and I go, well, I mean... You're from the suburbs, so. <laughs> and then the third could and often is my political party judgment, where I hear any person associated with any party, and I go, oh, well, I mean, of course you believe that. And so the invitation for us as a church, if we're actually going to be united together, is to stop these judgments. Finally, and this is connected to stopping judgments, our final invitation is to offer fellowship offer fellowship, to begin looking for ways that we can sit across the table from someone who is different from us, to begin to listen and ask genuine questions. If that Carnegie study was true, and at the base of our society is this experience of vulnerability, that all of us are feeling hostile and afraid because some part of us feels vulnerable or exposed the invitation is for us as a church to begin reaching out across 
the divisions, across the divides, to extend a hand and to listen by asking, what is it you feel vulnerable in? Is there any way that Jesus could help center you in that vulnerability? In some ways, this, this is the way of Jesus, is it not? This is the way that Jesus himself, as Jesus walked through the streets, the very hotly contested streets of Jerusalem and Galilee, Jesus moved through all of these different political parties and tensions and visions and values. And interestingly, Jesus never fully affiliated himself with any, but instead just kept extending the hand. He just kept offering fellowship, inviting others in. Jesus was followed by tax collectors and zealots. He was followed by Roman centurions and by Pharisees. I mean, nobody was outside the invitation of Jesus. And so as a church, as a church, my prayer for us that uh, I hope we will continue to have conversations around is what it could mean to actually be against divisiveness and to pursue unity together. If we could do this as a church, I actually do think this city, our neighborhood here in Lincoln Park, is going to start noticing why does such an eclectic group of Republicans and Democrats, of those who view this and that, this way and that, who live over here and who also live over here, who are educated and who are not educated, why does that community all gather together on a Sunday to celebrate that Jesus is their Lord? In just a moment, we're going to have a chance to respond with communion. I would love to pray for us now as you hold this and just create a little space for where the Spirit of God might be moving in your own heart. God, we lift this message up to you not with confidence or strength, but with deep humility, knowing that everyone, including myself, has been complicit in that vulnerability that has led to divisiveness and that fear that has pushed others away. Lord, even now, I pray you'd be stirring in hearts, stirring in this room, practical steps we could take to become more Jesus-centered as a community, to listen to your word, to stop judging, and to ext instead extend that hand of fellowship. Lord, give us guidance. Hold your church together. Even as Jesus prayed, Lord, make us one. Amen. Amen.